0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalldon and today we're going to talk to Laurie Bertram on her cultural history of Icelandic immigration to Canada and the United States. Dr. Bertram is a curator and historian of migration, material culture, gender and sexuality in the global north. Currently, she is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. Her book, The Viking Immigrants, Icelandic North Americans, was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. In it, she takes everyday forms such as clothing, baking, coffee drinking, and ghost stories to explore the history and evolution of Icelandic popular culture and identity in North America from the 1870s onwards. Lori, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So what motivated you to research and write this history of Icelanders in North America?
1: Well, I guess like a lot of historians, I had a personal connection to my subject matter. And uh, I grew up in Manitoba in a Icelandic and Scottish family and I noticed that in a lot of the historiography of the community whether it was from North America or from Iceland they would often talk about things that didn't really connect to the everyday world and life that was very common in Manitoba and in other Icelandic settlements and so I decided to write a book about the living culture the culture that you can see or you can still see elements of every chapter of my book in the community today. And it was partially a response to um, the tendency to treat the community as um, either, you know, made up of institutions and often male leaders, so male church leaders or political leaders, or as something that was dead. So um, there's a tendency in a lot of the historiography to talk about like the vanishing culture of these people. And you know, growing up, I never felt like I was part of a dead culture. You know, it was alive all around me, but it it took these on these everyday forms. And so I I turned to the everyday forms and often ones that are uh, very important to women or in which women play or women and children play a central role. And I kind of did a genealogy of these everyday fixtures. And so in doing it, I realized I'd actually kind of found a new roadmap that helped understand how our community has evolved over time. So, yeah, it's about the everyday Um, it's about home Um, and yeah it's something that I think in the community in particular I was really happy with how community members responded to it because they were like they understood kind of every day every chapter Um, they had a connection to every chapter they had a story that they could contribute to every chapter so yeah it's about um, sort of what's still around today in some
0: respects You present an amazing statistic in your book, and that is between 1875 and the First World War, about 20% of the entire population of Iceland emigrated to North America. What caused this massive exodus?
1: Oh, a lot of different factors. And this is, you know, the more I learned about the community, the more I learned about, you know, some of the really fascinating reasons that people immigrated. From a big picture perspective um, it had to do with the climate crisis in Iceland um, in the 1870s that was uh, causing a lot of cold um, extra cold winters and summers um, also affecting people's ability to fish so the food uh, situation could be quite unstable especially in the north where a lot of people came from including my own family um, there was also a pretty rigid socioeconomic, uh hierarchy there um, that made life quite difficult for many people living on the margins, especially the unpropertied classes, uh, women who had children out of wedlock and things like that. And then a lot of other really fascinating things like people who just were adventurous or people that were ambitious, especially um, women who were trapped in domestic or in like kind of indentured servitude in Iceland. You know, the, um, these were economic migrants that saw the opportunities for a radical transformation in North America, and that drew them there. And I even found stories about queer migrants as well, people that left um, behind kind of this old rigid society to reinvent themselves and find new possibility in a different place.
0: Now, 1,400 Icelanders came in the wake of the 1876 volcanic eruption in Eastern Iceland, and these immigrants brought smallpox with them. And as you write, the epidemic devastated both the Icelandic uh, members of the community and the indigenous population in the Lake Winnipeg area. Can you describe what happened and the nature of the relationship between the new settlers and the indigenous people in the area? Mm
1: Yeah, you know... 1876 to 1878, there's so much happening in Manitoba. What becomes Manitoba? Um, The Canadian government created a a reserve, basically, for Icelanders um, to settle in, and this was on unceded territory um, that had not been uh, negotiated in treaties and was still occupied um, by local Indigenous people. Um, and there's a lot of documentation of this, um, members of the St. Peter's Band, um, people from Norway House, people from all around uh, Lake Winnipeg had connections to this area. So the Icelanders who came, um, came, uh, you know, it's it's kind of, it's such a big story, it's hard to tell the whole thing, but... Um, they did come through Quebec City, and this is where uh, oral narratives suggest that they caught smallpox, either from children playing together, and Ryan Aford points out that you know, Quebec City had quite a few smallpox epidemics during this time, um, or through contaminated clothing that they'd purchased, secondhand clothing. And when they came to um, the already established Icelandic reserve, this big group, um, they, they brought it with them. And so as winter began to fall in New Iceland or what they called New Iceland, smallpox uh, sort of reared its head and then it began to spread and assume a more virulent form. Um, And so the result of like this winter of 1876 to 77 was catastrophic Um, and people, the Icelanders described it. Um, in some respects, as a kind of Ragnarok from the Viking uh, age, from this Viking belief in the apocalypse. And there's there's areas um, that they named according kind of to this Ragnarok connection, this, you know, Viking era apocalyptic sort of um, belief. And so it hit the Icelanders pretty hard. I think they had about a population loss of about 10%. But um, the indigenous communities around the lake that didn't have some of the immunities that Icelanders had built up, you know, over, you know, centuries. It really hit those communities so hard. And there's narratives about, you know, what happened in those communities. Um, sometimes entire villages were killed. Um, and I think for the Icelanders, you know, I can only speak to the Icelandic side of this. Uh, I can't speak to the what the Indigenous communities um, experienced and how they remember this. But I can tell you that the Icelanders, um, they interpreted what they were witnessing around them through a traditional Icelandic lens, including traditional Icelandic superstitious belief. And a lot of this has roots in the pre-Christian Viking world or the pre-Christian Nordic world. And so what they describe in these um, ghost stories, and this is why I kind of turn to ghost stories to tell the story of the epidemic in my book. I have a whole chapter on just kind of understanding these Icelandic ghost stories in Canada, um, what they describe is something that was so um, horrific um, that it was it would haunt them for generations, and so we see the appearance of these kinds of ghosts in the Icelandic um, stories that are in keeping with. Um, kind of like a curse ghost, Um, we call them Filgir or followers. And so there are followers that begin to appear, there are stories about our relationship to um, um, to this epidemic that show that Icelanders felt that like, although they had not intentionally done this, that they were going to be sort of like followed by the legacy of what had transpired. And I think, you know, this is a really, For me, this was a really smart and helpful way to think about our larger relationship to colonialism, is that, you know, people didn't, you know, people kind of showed up and they maybe didn't really understand what was going on, um, especially people that didn't necessarily really believe in the colonial vision of the state, but we are tied to it. And the Icelandic traditional beliefs that came out of the pandemic, the the smallpox epidemic, sorry, really help kind of illuminate how the, how the settlers understood their larger relationship to the colonial project and what was happening to their Indigenous neighbours.
0: Now, of course, many Canadians are aware of the Icelandic settlement on the western side of Lake Winnipeg, uh, the reserve that you call New Iceland, particularly the area uh, involving Gimli, Manitoba. However, you say that this region was not the largest or most successful Icelandic settlement in Canada or the United States by the end of the 19th century. So tell us, what were some of the larger and more successful settlements? And why does Gimli and the area around Gimli still seem to many to be the center of Icelandic immigration?
1: Yeah, the biggest settlement was Winnipeg. It was an urban Icelandic settlement. So there was um, Icelandic neighbourhoods in Winnipeg, including the West End along Sargent Avenue, which was referred to both as um, Icelandic Main Street and also they called it Yao Street. And Jaujau means, it means like, yeah, yeah. Basically, like if you're talking to someone, you're like, yeah, yeah. So it was based on like overhearing Icelanders say Jaujau all the time. <laughs> So, like, that's how many Icelanders there were. Um, And there was a huge urban population and very diverse in terms of their class, their political beliefs, um, even sometimes their sexual orientation. And, you know, there was these, like, elite Icelanders who married into, like, the the English elite families of Canada, including the Eatons family, Signe Eaton married the who's from the west end of Winnipeg married and married the heir to the Eaton's fortune um and then you have like these other Icelanders in Winnipeg including my own um great grandfather who was kind of like you know getting into trouble and getting into fights and hitting the bar like a lot and these are kind of these troublesome Icelanders and what um ends up happening is that You know, there's this larger anxiety about urban immigrants uh, around the turn of the century and, of course, in the late 19th century as well, that urban immigrants aren't the kind of immigrants that you want, right, in Canada, especially Western Canada. What What the state wants are good farmers who will, like, go out, you know, to, like, 40 kilometers outside of Moose Jaw and be happy there and just work the land, Right. So these Winnipeg Icelanders were kind of the wrong sort of immigrants in a way, um, but what they created in the city was fantastic and amazing. And I'm actually working on a um, a new article right now on uh, even just like the immigrant food culture in the West End at this time. Um, and like they had, you know, coffee houses and bars, pool halls, dressmaker shops, like Theatres, all of this stuff. But we tend to overlook them because they have this kind of, they're tainted with this kind of like urban immigrant brush. Um, and sort that, of that kind of like stigma has carried on through the generation. So you can actually go to Yau Yau Street now, Sargent Avenue in Winnipeg. And even though this is the heart of the biggest Icelandic settlement outside of Iceland, there's not, there's, I think there's like not a single sign that tells you that, not a single like no building is protected aside. Yeah, actually, I don't think any of the buildings are protected aside from maybe the church, which is still functioning as a Lutheran church. And otherwise, you you have no idea where you were, where you are, and what what happened here. So, yeah, it's funny. Like this Icelandic Winnipeg is completely sort of erased um, from popular memory, aside from a few small community initiatives that have sprung up. Um, So, yeah. And then, of course, like these and then you have the rural settlements like Gimli, where you can go and here's Icelanders doing what they were what they were sort of brought to do. Right.
0: What they were supposed to do. (laughs) Yes.
1: Exactly. Farm and fish. And kind of like because they're more considered to be these like Arctic people um, thriving. Right. In a, a more northerly kind of climate. So, yeah, it's kind of this, um, this funny narrative that has never really been totally corrected.
0: Now, your book stands out in one respect. Of course, many of our other podcasts, we reviewed documentary sources and the interviews that people relied upon. And you did all of that. But you also relied on objects, to explore the evolution of Icelandic culture in North America. So can you describe what these objects were and how you used them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a material culturalist, love the history of objects. I think that objects contain so much data that gets overlooked. And so when I was trying to recover the, the everyday lives and voices of Icelanders that may not have left behind written documentation, I focused on their material imprints. And there's a, a poem at the end of my book. Um, uh, though we don't see, the though the, the path of the traveler might not be illuminated in fiery speeches or glowing torches, we can see their path through the axe marks they leave on the birch trees, right? So these like woodsmen kind of going through and chopping chopping their path. And so I used that idea that like, if we look at the axe marks on the birch trees, if we look at kind of like the everyday physical imprints, that everyday lives, their records are there. So I used, um, yeah, things like socks, <laughs> um, coffee pots, uh, Scotch glasses, tea towels, um, a lot of stuff on fashion and dress, shoes, um, a lot of the indigenous material culture that pops up in the Icelandic community to talk about their economic relationship, and of course like their social relationships when people are intermarrying and things, um, and then of course vinatarta the cake, because that cake is it's it's something Icelanders are obsessed with in North America. Um, They're obsessed with never changing the recipe. And so as I went through kind of like the genealogy of this cake, I found all of these, this kind of hidden story that we had sort of lost about how the cake sort of arrived in our culture and how it changed over time. And I could see the imprints of different bakers, women that had made changes to the recipe to adapt to different conditions. And I didn't always have their names, but I could like almost see into their kitchens and into their mixing bowls, which was the coolest thing. So yeah, like the the food and the material culture was really essential for me to get at those kitchens, those everyday kind of worlds.
0: In your chapter on clothing, you introduce us to a fascinating character. Uh, her alias was Miss Olaf krauer and she had the stage name of the little Eskimo lady. And she took advantage of what at the time was a common misconception that Icelanders were actually Inuit, like the Inuit from Greenland. Can you explain this misconception to us?
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So Olaf Olofkrar was uh, a little person. She was born, um, I think she was under, she was about three feet tall, I think. And she had a lot of health conditions and like a lot of uh, people who were, you know, not able to thrive in Icelandic society. She jumped on a boat and went looking for something better in North America. And most uh, North Americans believe that Icelanders, well, most North Americans, southerly North Americans knew nothing about the Arctic. Um, Basically all they could go off of were these kind of racist stereotypes based on really momentary encounters recorded by um, more southerly Europeans, like, and I include the English in the term southerly. Um, So there is no, like, what was sort of described as being Arctic culture at this time has very little relationship to reality. And Olaf Krar um, and many Icelanders were often believed to be part of this mythical sort of Eskimo race that just blanketed the Arctic. And as she, because of her short stature, it was kind of particularly bad because of these racist ideas about, you know, the Eskimo race. And so people would constantly come up to her and be like, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Iceland. They'd be like, oh, we've never seen an Eskimo before. And she actually found out that a woman had hired her as a domestic and was charging people money to come just look at her. So she was getting paid something like, you know, just a few cents a day. And this woman was charging people like a quarter and she just noticed like all these people coming in and looking at her and leaving so she left winnipeg and went to north dakota to the icelandic settlement there and uh, again this kept happening she was working in a, a hotel bar room and finally you know she'd get really mad about it and finally this one minister came up to her and said you know i'm really interested in eskimos and like her blood pressure started to rise and he said, and I'll pay you $5 if you give me, if you can come lecture to my missionary group. And she said, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I Okay, sold. I will give you a lecture. And so she, I think maybe she went to a library or read some kind of, like, half enangled version of something from the Arctic. And then just made up all kinds of wild things, like... That, you know, she was part of this miniature race of people that lived in Greenland. And they rode around on sleds made out of frozen fish and drank the blood of polar bears. And, you know, people in North America ate it for breakfast. They loved it. And so she built uh, kind of this like uh, this impersonation career. Um, and it's funny because Wilhelm Stefansson, who was a, a famous sort of Arctic scholar... Um, spent a lot of time in the Canadian Arctic. He knew that she was, he, number one, he knew who she was. He knew that she was uh, Icelandic. Um, and he also knew that what she was doing was totally wrong and also like really perpetuating a lot of misinformation about Northern people. And he never intervened because he knew that um, it was her only means of survival, that she would have died um, in uh, poverty Um, without this career so her work though like man it actually people went to her lectures at Cornell like she delivered thousands of lectures in the U.S. and they put it into American textbooks so like a lot of the misinformation about the arctic um, at this time we can actually trace back to this woman's performing career and also the appetite for the arctic without any kind of like rigor you know So, uh, yeah, it's this wild story, and it's one with a lot of complicated legacies, Um, but it definitely tells us a lot about the profound disconnection between the South and the North. Um, I think globally, not just um, in North America, and the desire of more southerly North Americans to consume something of the Arctic without like for their own purposes, you know. So, yeah, it's a it's a wild story.
0: Well, I never realized that coffee drinking was so important uh, to Icelanders. Can you describe this coffee drinking culture and how did it change in North America?
1: Oh, absolutely. So Icelanders, uh, like a lot of people from the Nordic countries, I think anyone that lives in the Arctic, like can appreciate or the far north can appreciate the importance of caffeine and (laughs) like hot, hot beverages. So for Icelanders, um, in the 19th century, coffee was the cornerstone of life in many regards. If you worked, um, you know, as a labourer, part of your wages would be paid in hot coffee. Um, it was the heart of social life in the evenings. There's a tradition called kvöldvaka, which basically just means staying up all night and drinking coffee and telling stories. And it's part of our, our kind of narrative traditions. And so coffee was, you know, fuel was the gasoline for our cold (laughs) bucket. And yeah, so when Icelanders came to North America, though, of course, they were never envisioning that there would be no coffee or coffee would be considered a luxury item in North America. And tea, because it was so economical um, and because it was a British sort of, um, because it was settler society was so focused on these British traditions, Icelanders were horrified. They were like, what? there's no coffee here. I think it was one of those things that it hadn't really been talked about very much. But when I went back into the records and started reading through these letters and reminiscences, like <laughs> the sense of shock and outrage about the um, expense of coffee here, as well as the poor quality, was a big deal for people. It was a big deal in their daily lives. So, what I loved to see was how they responded. And um, they kind of transformed the urban coffee markets in the places where they settled. So they'd moved to a place, say North Dakota, well, North Dakota, they had um, a lot of uh, Scandinavian immigrants already there that had already sort of started the the coffee <laughs> grinder market wheels going. But in Canada, they had to start special ordering in you know, unroasted coffee beans, and then they'd roast them themselves because they didn't trust the roasters, like the pre-roasted coffee, because it was atrocious and it would be stale and old. And so they also built their own Icelandic coffee houses in places like Winnipeg, where you could go and not just get good Icelandic coffee, but also meet your friends, have political conversations in Icelandic where no one could sort of like overhear you and report you. Um, You know like write uh read and kind of belong not be part of this um not have be kind of like observed as a a foreigner and being kind of made to feel uncomfortable or unwelcome in a place for speaking a different language um or expressing different beliefs so these coffee houses were these big cultural spaces
0: Right. Now, I've only traveled to Iceland once, but I became aware of a highway, the construction of which was stopped because of the belief that it was disturbing the elves who lived in the area. And I was quite surprised by that. Uh, And I asked around and discovered that uh, a lot of people actually believed in the elves and some they, they wouldn't, uh, they, despite being scientists and highly educated, wouldn't eliminate the possibility. So I found out that there was, in fact, a 2007 study by the University of Iceland that estimated that 62% of the population still believed in elves. So I was kind of fascinated by uh, your chapter um, on ghost stories and belief in the supernatural. And I wanted to ask you, what what exactly was the nature of these very deep beliefs in the supernatural over a century ago among Icelanders living in North America? And uh, did this set Icelanders apart from other immigrant communities?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's an issue of translation. Um, in English, uh, words like superstition or elves they have all these funny connotations, um, that tend to be, you know, associated with things like silliness or hysteria, um, childlike things. And I think that this has to do with, um, sort of the British baggage, um, surrounding the suppression maybe of alternate forms of spiritual belief. And in Iceland, I think the nature of Icelanders conversion to Christianity um, as well as the centrality of the language in the culture, really helps kind of put this all into context. And so Icelanders have a really different sort of spiritual universe um, that is part of everyday life. And of course, Christianity um, is the official sort of like spiritual uh, institution. Um, but Icelanders have a really different relationship to um, land. Um, to language, and then also to this longer spiritual history. And when Icelanders converted to Christianity, there was um, an explanation or a promise that people, um, that they were going to officially accept Christianity, but that people could still practice the old faith in private. Um, And in many respects, uh, that coupled with Iceland's uh, profound isolation from the rest of the world up until the 1870s helped to shelter a lot of older and um really unique spiritual beliefs uh, some of which have their roots in the viking age so for example icelanders believe in more than 18 different kinds of ghosts like there are ghosts that of course i mentioned the follower ghosts there's also um you know the place ghosts which i guess are kind of close to english ghosts or british uh, english language ghosts um there's zombies. Um, and then we have other spiritual figures like the folk or the hidden people. And people often just say, you know, elves to describe these people and these figures in English. Um, but they are actually better understood as land spirits. They are the kind of like spirits of the land. And they set out boundaries about how certain pieces of land should be treated and respected And people take this very seriously because um, the belief belief is that your relationship to that spirit has a direct relationship to your well-being and your safety and your health. So people that violate these certain ideas that like this land is set apart for spiritual reasons, um, it is not for everyday use. It is not for a condo. It is not for a highway. And if you cross that line, there will be consequences. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of um, an impressive measure, I think, of how alive um, many of these old beliefs can be still in the culture. And that's certainly what I find today in the people that left Iceland and settled here and created kind of the Icelandic North American culture. Even though most of them don't believe that the Huldefolk could immigrate, so there's only Huldafolk, according to many people, in Iceland because they are land spirits. Um, but some people do believe there are like a few Huldefolk households in North America, but um, as kind of a controversial assertion.
0: <laughs> right now, you devote a chapter to the image of the Viking and its use by Icelanders in public festivals. You argue that Icelanders. In your words emphasize their historical viking connections as a way of both acknowledging and neutralizing their differences and of course this was particularly important during periods of anti-immigrant sentiment can you explain this a little bit to us
1: absolutely so i have a whole chapter in my book on kind of like how the idea of icelanders as vikings changes over time and then what that can really tell us about how they were trying to navigate racism um, and anti-immigrant sentiment in North America. And so Icelanders, you know, they, they, they were you know, at some points they were considered to be these like Eskimo people. And at other points they were considered to be, you know, these cousins to the English or modern day Vikings. And so what the community did was they strategically engaged with North American discourses about race and whiteness to, um, deal with the potential damaging um effects of um anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-indigenous sentiment as well. And so they because in the 19th century the British and British Victorian culture there was like this kind of like viking fever, they were really excited about you know discovering like you know all of this stuff and as I mentioned in my book it it has to do with race. They're they're kind of like trying to supplant um Christopher Columbus's claim to the Americas as an Italian Catholic, and they reimagine Lever Ericsson and the Viking voyages to North America as proof that it was, you know, these Northern Europeans that quote unquote discovered North America. So the Viking becomes this tool that the community uses to put themselves, um, to cast themselves as a desirable group as a group that the English should uh, tolerate or the British should tolerate um, and welcome and embrace. Um, And so, yeah, it has to do with this larger sort of campaign of anti-Catholic sentiment, um, anti-immigrant sentiment. And then also like the genuine connection that Icelanders felt to uh, the sagas, of course, the Icelandic sagas are a really important part of Icelandic culture and identity. And the saga said, you know, Icelanders aren't, um, you know, this, this foray to North America is actually um, historical. It has these deeper, longer roots because of the Vinland the voyages. And it was kind of a way to also get back at the Icelanders at home who were very anti-immigration and saying like, you know, these people that are going to North America are traitors um icelanders here said we're not traders we're vikings you know this is part of this larger <laughs> thousand year long um story
0: now i i know some icelanders myself and i know how important tarta is to them and that's for our audience is the six or seven layer generally prune tort layered cake how did this what i think it's considered to be a commonplace food in Iceland get transformed into, as you put it, an almost sacred ethnic symbol and perhaps the most dominant symbol of Icelandic culture in Canada after the Second World War.
1: Yeah, well the whole story, I think if, if people are interested, check out either the chapter in my book or the article I wrote for Gastronomica on how it changes. But what I found about Vinatarta sort of becoming this sacred, unchangeable symbol is that, you know, this is this is um, a souvenir from a community that changed many things about itself to survive, um, to thrive. And Vinatarta is sort of a symbol of the thing that you should never change about yourself. So the Vinatarta that is made in Canada today is actually, it's an 1870s, um recipe that dates back to the time of the emigration from iceland and even though you know i often hear people say like why do you make it with prunes like why don't you make it with chocolate or why does it have to be so specific it takes too much time why don't we do it a different way man like those are fighting words like you (laughs) you will like gravely upset elderly women (laughs) (laughs) And young people too, like, yeah, it is like very taboo to change anything about this recipe. And it's, it's kind of a perfect souvenir of a community that has both changed a lot of things about itself, but also remains alive and um, continues to really self-identify and, uh, and I think thrive, in a way.
0: Preserved in aspic.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, Laurie, I want to thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been really
0: fun. Well, my guest today was Lori Bertram. She is the author of The Viking Immigrants, Icelandic North Americans. It was published by University of Toronto Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way that you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on May 7th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.